Romans, Romans chapter 8. We are continuing a little mini-series, jumping off from John's Gospel, where Jesus teaches on the Holy Spirit to get into Romans chapter 8 on the Holy Spirit. We'll be back to John's Gospel next week. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 1, reading through verse 15. If you're new to Christianity and aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed it for you in your worship guide on page 9. This is God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but... If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You may be seated. Would you join with me again as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need your help. And so by your word, come with all of the power of the resurrection of Jesus into our sin-broken lives and recreate us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Adam read these words from Zechariah as Israel was facing this great insurmountable task and God through his angel promises not by power or by might not by your strength but by my spirit says the Lord and what we've seen in the previous four weeks is that the spirit of God God the Holy Spirit given by Jesus to His people is the power of God. He now lives in 
those who belong to Jesus Christ. We've been recreated. We're no longer who we once were. Experience new life at work in us. That's what makes a Christian is I belong to Jesus and Jesus has taken up his home in me and therefore there is a new power at work in our lives. But I asked this last week and I would ask it again. How many of us would characterize the Christian life as an experience of God marked by power? There's a gap in my life between who I want to be and who I actually am. A gap between my ideal self and my actual self. And I'm not the only one. I would imagine that all of us here, right, have just grown tired of the gap to one degree or another. You maybe even recently resolved to do something about it. We're going to redouble our efforts and we're going to close the gap or else you've tried that enough times that you've just given up and you've decided that you're just going to Get okay with the gap. I just need to be okay with the fact that who I am now. You see, when we can't fill that gap between our ideal self and our actual self, the other thing that we start to do is, you know, you can't get okay with it for very long. And none of us just gets okay with who we are. We feel our brokenness so intently. So the other way to fill that gap is just to begin to blame others. It's my parents' fault. It is my environment's fault. It is my tradition's fault. If only I would have fill in the blank because we simply can't bear the weight of our own brokenness anymore and we can't stand the gap any longer. So someone else has to shoulder the blame. Here's the thing. Blame never leads to change. And there's a sense in which the gospel has to fill that gap, right? This is why we've emphasized the righteousness of Christ that this today, that right, that what Jesus does for his people is he doesn't say, earn a record and then God will accept you. He says, I will earn a record for you. I will give you my righteousness. And that fills the gap. But there's still a longing. There's still a longing that we would be different than we currently are. And if you've grown tired of the blame game and you've grown tired of the gap, I have bad news for you. The first thing that Jesus does when he enters into someone's life by his Holy Spirit is to widen that gap. I've said before that the experience, the experience of the Holy Spirit always starts with dissatisfaction. Faction. I'm just not okay with the status quo. I'm not okay with who I am. I, I want to see things changed. And part of what the Spirit is doing is He's widening the gap so big that we would stand and say, Not by power, not by my power, not by my might. God, you must work by your Holy Spirit. You've got to close this gap. You've got to do something about this. I am dissatisfied with the status quo and I see the problem is so insurmountable that you alone are the one who can do something about it and that's the kindness of Jesus to widen the gap in our lives with that sense of discouragement dissatisfaction because he won't allow us to live with the self deception that we can fill the gap on our own 
He's not going to throw us back on ourselves. See, we're in this portion of John's gospel where Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples, and we've jumped off from there. It's the upper room discourse. He's gathered them around, and in this extended discourse, he spends most of his time saying to them, I'm leaving you. The mission in front of you is too big for you to carry out. The world's going to hate you. People are going to be dissatisfied with you. But the gospel's got to go forward. So here's what I'm doing. I'm giving you my spirit. And you'll experience power. One of the last things he tells his disciples before he leaves Jerusalem is stay here and wait. What he says is the power of God to come down. And then the spirit of God comes at Pentecost. And so when Jesus invades our lives, he does so by sending the Spirit into our lives to deal with, by God's power, with the power of sin that is in us. See, there is a darkness called sin that is also a power. It's taken over our whole being. If you've been around the church or around Christians, you've heard us talk about sin, and you probably are thinking sin is, is doing the wrong things. But the Bible backs up from there and says, before sin is ever something that we do, sin is a power, a corrupting power that is in all of us. It's an enemy that is greater than any of our strength. It's far darker and worse than ISIS and any of its malicious intentions. It's corrupted every institution of our being. Sin has taken over and has occupied us and every one of us has held hostage in our natural selves. It's held hostage by its corrupting evil and perhaps the reason that we don't enjoy more of the power of the Spirit in our lives to close the gap is because so few of us really think of the Christian life as a conflict of powers. Here in Romans 8, this is what Paul has done. He's he's taken up the language, the metaphor of occupying powers. And he said the sin is an occupying power. And when Jesus comes into our lives, the Holy Spirit becomes a new occupying power. The power of indwelling sin can and only can be overcome by the greater power of God, the indwelling spirit of Jesus. So Paul uses law here in Romans 8 in two different senses. He's playing with words. In one sense, he's talking about the law as the commands of God. And that's what he means in verse 4 when he says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. He means God's commands. And oftentimes when you read law in the Bible, that is what we're thinking. But there is another sense that he uses law in this passage as a ruling force, a ruling power. That's what he means in verse 2 when he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We use law this way too. We speak of the law of gravity or the laws of thermodynamics and physics. 
those kind of laws, what we mean that way is it's a ruling power. It governs everything. It determines behavior. It's a force, an invisible force. It's exerting its control on everything. And no matter how much you might want to deny the law of gravity, you are not going to float away from its controlling power over your life. It is a law that rules. And this is what he's saying. The law, the ruling power of God the Holy Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the ruling power of sin and death. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, the power of the Spirit sets you free from the ruling power of sin and death. And that's good news. I mean, you see, this is where the gap just begins to widen for the followers of Jesus. Because that creates a conflict. This is where the gap widens. Now the, there's a conflict between the power of who you once were apart from Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit making you into someone new. And God the Holy Spirit is killing the remaining power of sin in the lives of God's people which creates a conflict in all of us. See, Paul began this line of reasoning all the way back in Romans chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self, or man, better translated, the old person, the old Adam, the old man, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, this is, if you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just hear this word. This is what happened. Is sin, sin has enslaved you. You can't break, the reason you don't experience change in your life is because you are bound willingly to this enslaving power. But if you've come to Christ, you see what he's saying? If I'm a follower of Jesus, that old power of sin I've been set free from it and no longer I'm no longer its slave now that can lead you to be overly optimistic in the Christian life and you could say I'm no longer a slave to sin I've been set free which is true but it can easily lead to this uh, ambition I'm gonna I want to experience the victorious Christian life I've actually known people who have believed this to the degree that they've said, I've not sinned in years. Which I always look them quickly in the eye and say, let me ask your spouse if that's true. The other side of this is, you know, this sort of half-truth is that there's Christians who have so thought of the Christian life as complete and utter victory over sin because of the Holy Spirit's residing power in our lives that when they don't see complete and ultimate victory in their lives they live just defeated and give up and hopeless but Paul wants us to hold the victory of Jesus over sin by the Spirit coming into our life as a new ruling power with the tension that there's still a lot of this remaining power of sin in our lives. It just is no longer ruling. And so Paul gets a little autobiographical and now in Romans 7. 
You see the pattern. Romans 6, you've been set free from sin. It's not the ruling power in your lives. Romans 8, that's because Jesus is taken up as the new ruling power in your life by his spirit. And now, by the way, let me tell you what this feels like in Romans chapter 7. He describes the gap. He describes that internal conflict that arises because the indwelling spirit as the power of God is setting us free from the ruling power of sin and death where the spirit now reigns instead of sin. But sin is still present as a corrupting power. Verse 18 of Romans 7. Now tell me if this doesn't describe what you normally feel in the Christian life. It's what I feel all the time. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. How many times have we had this conversation with each other? I don't know why I keep doing it. Paul's answer is, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Anyone who's tried to live faithfully to Jesus has felt this tension. It it makes the Christian life feel like a roller coaster. One day I'm doing great. I'm feeling confident in the Christian life. I'm experiencing power over sin and victory. God seems so close and intimate. It is as if the power of the Spirit is pulsating through my life and producing joy and boldness. And then I wake up the next day and I feel so defeated and the struggle with a particular sin is so oppressive and consuming. And oftentimes I find it to be like, that's the morning experience and that's the evening experience. Up and down and up and down. And here's what Paul is saying. That struggle is the normal result of God, the Holy Spirit, and His power dwelling in you. If you don't experience that conflict, he's saying you're you're just not a Christian. Because where the Spirit of God is, He has awakened you and opened the gap. The struggle with indwelling sin as a power in our life is the sign that the Holy Spirit has come into your life. Romans 8, 13 now. Here's the opposite promise. Because that, if that's just like all that characterizes you is just this internal struggle, I mean, that's good news for a moment, but then you still like, I need to see the gap shrink. I just want to be somebody different because the Spirit has put a new impulse in me. It's a desire to grow, to be more like Jesus. I mean, the Holy Spirit gives us a desire for holiness. That makes sense, right? The Holy Spirit makes us want more holiness. So if you live, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is what you have to get if you're going to experience the Christian life by the power of the Spirit. You have been raised to new life. That's what Paul's saying in verse 9. You're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. 
In fact, uh, if you've got the old NIV, still a great translation at times, it says you're not in the realm of the flesh, you're in the realm of the spirit, even though sin still dwells in you. And that's the language. You get this, you're beginning to maybe catch this. You're like, oh, that sounds like death and resurrection. I've died and been raised to new life. I'm no longer under the condemnation of sin, verse 1, but I'm now free to be a son of God and cry out, Abba, Father. I'm not under the judge's condemnation because I'm in Christ. I'm under the Father's pleasure because I'm in Christ. That's the bookends. In between, you're also no longer under the ruling power of sin. You're now in the ruling power of the Spirit. Now, if you've got your Bibles, go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Death, resurrection. I'm not in... Adam in all of his sin. I'm in Christ in all of his power. And what he promised in John 14 to the disciples is my spirit will be, he's with you. Now he's going to be in you. And the power, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in you and he's causing you to walk in newness of life. I love Daffodils and Bradford pears when they come out in the spring because they are the first ones to bloom. They are a sign that spring is on its way. And you can be sure that the rest of spring will follow behind the first blooms of the daffodils. And when you become a follower of Jesus, all of you who belong to Jesus have experienced this one time. I was blind. I didn't want Jesus. I didn't want anything to do with him. I disliked him. I didn't see myself or my need for him. All of a sudden, I'm awakened. I follow him. That's the first, those are the daffodils of the Christian life. That's the daffodils of the new creation breaking in. It's just the beginning. Because this is what Paul says in 7, 6. Having died with Christ, we can now serve him in the newness of the Spirit. John Calvin, the great Swiss-French pastor in the 16th century, said it this way. It is the Spirit that inflames our hearts with the fire of ardent love for God and neighbor. That doesn't come naturally to any of us. Only by the Spirit breaking into our lives, bringing us to Jesus. Every day, as a result, he kills sin. Calvin uses the word mortify. That's old language for kill. Every day he mortifies sin. And every day consumes more and more of the vices of our evil desire or greed. So that if there are some good deeds in us. These are the fruits and virtues of his grace. And without the Spirit, there is nothing but darkness of understanding and perversity of heart. This is what God promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 27. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk by my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit empowers us to overcome sin in our lives because he's the new ruling power of the resurrection that God always wins never leaves us to ourselves and so that Paul can say go work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure he's like he's saying join the resistance movement and during World War II Germany had occupied France they'd come in the French people were enslaved to Nazi Germany and all of their evil they could do nothing but obey what Nazi Germany said it was too great of a force for them to rise up on their own to take them out but when the allies stormed Normandy they broke the ruling power of Nazi reign there has now a greater force that had taken up its beachhead in Nazi-occupied Germany and been moving in with power. And so now the French people were free to fight, to employ all of their weak resources to driving the Nazi evil from their homes and villages. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 12 and following. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, meaning the old ruling power of sin. We're at, we don't have to, you don't, you don't, in Christ, you don't say, that's just who I am, I'm just a sinner. He's like, no, that, that's, that's the old ruling power in my life. I am now in Christ, so if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. It will consume you and take you over and drive you into the ground. Don't live by sin. It will destroy you, and the end is always death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice this. Not, he doesn't say if you live by the flesh, you'll die, but if... You put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. That would be the empty promise of false religion. Here's the promise of the gospel. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You can't do this on your own. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We've been freed in Christ to join the Spirit's resistance movement against the remaining sin in our lives. And there is so much untapped power for us to experience in the Spirit. So that Paul can say, walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. During, Bill Bright tells a story during the Depression, there was a there was a field owned by a rancher in West Texas. And the rancher's was a pretty poor job at the time. And, and this particular rancher couldn't 
even make enough to run his ranching operations. He couldn't even pay the principal on his mortgage. They were fixing to foreclose on him. He had little money for clothes or food, and his family, like many others, who were living on government subsidies. And day after day, he was just grazing his sheep, hoping that he could pay his bills. And then an oil company came in. And they said, can we just drill one well just to see what's here? And they drilled down, and at a little over 1,000 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. And the first well that came up had over 80,000 barrels a day. In fact, 30 years later, after the discovery, more wells were drilled. And they said, you've been living on one of the largest oil reserves in the country. In fact, they still estimate that it produces over, has the potential going forward 30 years later to produce 125,000 barrels a day. And this poor rancher owned it all the whole time. The day he purchased the land, he had received the oil and mineral rights. He had been living on it all the time. The problem is he didn't know that the oil was there, oh, that he owned it. And that is most of the way that that most of us live the Christian life. A tremendous wealth of power at our disposal that has been yours from the very first day you gave yourself to Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how do we tap down into the power of the Spirit to overcome the remaining power of sin in our lives? Or to use Paul's language, how do we walk by the Spirit or set our mind on the things of the Spirit? So let me give us seven things to do now so we can tap down and live according to the Spirit by setting our minds on the Spirit so that we don't live by the power of sin, but by the power of the Spirit. Seven things. One, adjust your timeline. God took 4,000 years to bring his son into the world by the spirit to deal with sin don't think that he's just going to take a few days or weeks or maybe even years to deal with sin in your life so just your timeline don't measure God's power by the time he is taking He has purposes for taking his time, but he may be slow, but that doesn't mean he's impotent. And by the fact of the matter, if the Spirit worked overnight, most of us, we would never learn the joy of depending on Jesus. We just say, well, that was easy. Second, so first adjust the timeline. Second, repeat this promise to remind yourself of your new relationship to sin. Verse 12. Let me memorize this. So then we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Or as Paul says back in Romans chapter 6, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Just repeat that promise. This is what faith looks like. God says I'm free to struggle now. I don't I'm not sin's slave. 
been set free. God says I'm free to struggle, so I'm going to struggle. And then third, repeat the next verse to remind yourself of the power of the Spirit. And keep these two promises in tension. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Keep those two things. That is the tension of the Christian life. I'm not who I once was. I'm not yet who the Spirit is making me to be. I'm free to struggle, but I struggle by the Spirit, not by my own strength. And so I'm learning to be dependent on Jesus' Spirit to continue to see progress and victory. I'm dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Fourth, as a result, fight and don't give in. Remember, this is a war between two powers, the flesh and the spirit. And the spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead after he bore the curse for sin. So fight the winning fight and don't give in. You can fight this. this is, these are promises to hang on. I, I, I am assuming you are like me, and that is I will fight for a little bit, and then I'm going to give in. This is just too hard. And so usually I give in when I feel my own weakness. That is precisely the time when we've got to call on the Spirit even more. And to do that, Five, use the tools of the Spirit, or what we might call the means of grace. And that is, these are the means that the Holy Spirit has married himself to, to display and to um, dispense his power in our lives. Because the promise from Galatians 6, 5, 16 is this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. So you take up the Spirit's sword in God's Word. So when you fight, fight with the power of the Spirit in His Word. Pray. Let me say this just hearkening back a little bit to what Mark said in his opening comments. Man, this is what we do here. This is central. The Spirit is no more present in all of his power than he is when God's people gather together, for we are the temple of God's Spirit in his church. And Jesus has promised where two or three are gathered in his name, he's there by his Spirit, and where his Spirit is, he is there to unleash his power in conquering the remaining sin in our lives. If we, if we try to do this on our own strength or if we try to do this apart from our own corporate gathering, then we're just going to walk in powerless Christianity. That's not for us. Don't try to do that. Six, don't judge yourself by your progress. Judge yourself by being in Christ. You slowly slip into this. The Spirit's job is not to say, look, 
You needed the gospel back then when you became a Christian, but now you're progressing so far that you don't need the gospel today. The gospel is for yesterday, today, and forever. So the Paul said to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, don't think that. Did you receive the gift of the Spirit by faith or by works of the law? Now do you think that you're going to continue in the Christian life by faith or by works of the law? You need the gospel as much today as you do. You're going to need the gospel as much. In fact, as you grow in Christ, you see the gap widening, become more aware, and you're like, oh, gosh, I need Jesus more today than I ever did before. That's a sign the Spirit's working. Sixth, coming full circle now. Measure the power of the Spirit over time. And I really wanted to bookend this with these time emphases on because it's just, this is a process. I was having a conversation with one of our elders this week who was just, you know, reminding me again, just, we don't, we don't want to measure by how far we have to go. We want to measure how, by, how far the Spirit has brought us. I'm not who I once was. But I'm not who I will be either. So I need to, to measure the power of the Spirit over time by years and decades. So that you, can, you should be able to say, if, you're, if you've given your life to Jesus, it's like I'm a new creation. Ten years ago, I was completely different. I was very different than I am today. There, there are patterns of sin in my life that don't quite have the same hold on me that they did ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or one year ago. Or even one day ago, if today is the day that Jesus has awakened you by his spirit to your knee for him. I can remember distinctly just patterns. Some of you have heard the stories of, if you, if you want to hear funny stories about me, shortly after I became a Christian, things that God immediately got rid of my life, um, it was like, I was like, gosh, this is something new going on. But there are roots to those things that are still present in me today. And God is still dealing with those things. So almost immediately, I wasn't who I was. But still today, I still need to be made into a new man by the power of the Spirit. And so, here's the promise. Not by power or by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, our only hope is this. Come and make much of Jesus in our hearts until sin seems so much less appealing to us. We want more of your spirit and more of his power. So please, oh Lord, please, I beg you, work in new and fresh ways in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.